We humbly come this morning before our great God and King, and we proclaim that truth, that our God is great. And I pray this morning that as we um, study your word, that you would impress upon our hearts the supremacy of Christ for our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. We are trekking through the book of Acts, and we are trekking through Acts chapter 7. And you might notice in your bulletins that it looked as though I was going to complete Acts chapter 7 this morning, and I will not. So, one more week. Next week, we will conclude Acts chapter 7. But, um, the, the, uh, the thing this morning uh, that I want us to see... Is, is just what I said in that opening prayer there, is to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. And uh, that the aim, one of the aims of Stephen's speech here is to proclaim just that truth. Just to proclaim that the supremacy of who Christ is for us. So, we're going to look at Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 44. And we will go through verse 50. So if you turn yourselves there, we will begin. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by man's. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. As we looked, we saw some overarching themes throughout um, Acts chapter 7. And this morning, I want to look at another aspect that goes across the full of that, of that chapter. Is that um, this overarching theme, one of them, is that, and the whole of Scripture really is the same. Is that God is preparing a people that would dwell with him for eternity. God is preparing a people that is what God is doing in the world. That is what God is doing in the church. God is preparing a people that would be fit to dwell with him forever. This morning, I want to unpack a little more in depth, kind of the same theme from last week a little bit. So we're going to re-look at this, but a little deeper about the, the idea of the sufficiency in Christ and making a people fit to live with God. That Christ is sufficient. To make a people fit to live with God forever. And this being fit to live with God has implications both here and then in the hereafter. And so let's look again at Acts 7 verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So God gave him a pattern for this tent of witness. This is a dwelling place, right? To be a witness of 
what God had done amongst the people as God had brought them through his history of Israel as he's unpacked this throughout the chapter, right? And it leads to these ideas that we've talked about over the past few weeks is that, that God showed them a gift of grace in giving them these, giving them specific people as we looked at a gift of grace through Joseph as an example and then giving the gift of Moses as a giver of the law and, and, and as a deliverer, um, all kinds of things that we see that, that God gave them as gifts of grace. But these patterns were meant to point us to something, to something great. So when we unfolded these blessings of God's intervention in the midst of affliction, remember that, that God's blessings came to them in the midst of their afflictions. Um, and they, being sojourners, travelers, not of this world, Right, looking for a place to really dwell, and they could never find a dwelling place that was fit for them because they were God's people, and their dwelling place was was to be in heaven, was to be with Him forever. That was their ultimate dwelling place. And so, as they navigated this world, they navigated it in affliction. As we think about our lives in Christ and coming in opposition to everything that's out there in the world, is opposed to us living a life of Christ, right? Living a Christ-like life. The world is different than that. And so we are travelers, sojourners, strangers, pilgrims, as it were, that we then have the benefit here as a New Testament church of some hindsight. We can look back upon the historical account laid out by Stephen and see that these gifts of grace are a mere shadow, a shadow or a pattern of a greater gift of grace that is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That these, all these things are patterns Things to show us that God is gracious, right? God was gracious to them, but they're all patterns for us. If we look back as a New Testament church, we look upon those things as that these are patterns of a greater gift. That God gave us himself. That God gave us himself that we might be fit to dwell with him forever. That God had to give us his son to make atonement for us. To pay a price for us that was too high to pay. It was way too high for you and I to pay. And so... In the midst of our circumstances, one of the things that um, I heard this uh, emphasized to me in several different places this week, and it just so happened I was on the radio, and um, Andy Stanley was talking about affliction. And when he was talking about affliction, he said, you know, that as we look at circumstances and all of these things, that we ought to understand the reality that we, in our circumstances... Don't need to focus on that because a real person at a real time in history came and paid the price for all of our sin. That we put our hope in a person, not in circumstances. And this was emphasized to me over and over again as I read the scripture. I'm like, how? God is telling me this message. This is very important. I need to listen up. That it's all about a person. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. So you may think um, this morning to yourselves as we talk about this, that like this is, is a sort of no-brainer message for Christians, isn't it? That Christ is supreme. That Christ is all-sufficient. But how many times do we forget that Christ is all-sufficient? That Christ is supreme? How many times do we put something else ahead of that? I know how many times I do. I put my circumstances ahead of it. Say, if, if my circumstances would only be better, if my finances would only improve, then I could serve the Lord better. 
So I placed my emphasis on the wrong thing. It's the person of Jesus Christ that makes me a person fit for the kingdom of God. That makes you a person fit for the kingdom of God. That makes us a person fit for the kingdom of God. So another thing to look at this is that he shows us in this text in 44 is that the tent of witness was merely a shadow a shadow of Jesus. It's a, it's a pattern. It's a shadow. Um, it was great grace to them. It was great grace to the Israelites, but yet they dismissed that, right? And then they worshipped the gift more than the giver of the gift. And the whole point was to get them to look at the giver of the gift and not necessarily the gift. So it was a shadow, a pattern of things to come. And then, of course, when the tent of witness was not enough for them, what, what does God do? He gives them the plans and the idea and the pattern for the temple. But even in the temple's pattern and design, it was designed to point us and to point them to the greater gift of grace that was coming, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm making a big deal about patterns because the Bible is full of patterns, isn't it? The Bible as a, as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, is a pattern of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And that there are little nuances of, of the fullness of that pattern embedded in, in all these different sort of uh, stories that come up. The, the, this account in the book of Acts is, a, is a, just a microcosm, a small look at the pattern of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And God's re- redemptive plan for mankind is not like plan B. It it was the same plan that the plan from Genesis when he says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, right? But he also gives us this, the first look at the fact that Jesus Christ is the one that we look to. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And that Jesus Christ is the only one, the only way, the only truth, and the only life that will lead us to be a people fit for the kingdom of God. Make a people fit for heaven. I, I don't know about you, but when I examine my own personal sinfulness, I know that in myself I am not a person fit for the glory of God in heaven. I'm, I need intervention. I need the person of Jesus Christ to make me a person fit for the kingdom of God. Fit to behold the glory of God. In and of myself right now, I could not behold the glory of God. I couldn't. I can't. But because of what Jesus Christ did, he has made me fit. My life hidden in him has made me fit to behold the glory of God. So when we looked at the book of Acts, I've talked to you a lot about patterns. I talked about the book itself as a pattern. When we looked at at chapter 1, verse 8, and we saw the pattern of an expansive witness of Jesus Christ, that he says, wait When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. You will tell the truth about me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. And as we look at the the text of of the book of Acts, as it starts to unfold, we see that that witness was first in Jerusalem. And then it expanded to Judea. Then it expands to Samaria. And then ultimately to the uttermost ends of the earth. So... The book of Acts in itself is a pattern of God's grace. But in that pattern, that whole pattern is meant to point us 
to the person of Jesus Christ. And remember, we also talked about this, that there was a cyclical pattern that happens in the life of the church. This cyclical pattern in the life of the, of the church is throughout this book as well. I want to remind us of this again, and I've said this several times, but this principle that comes is that Christian leaders emerge and preach the gospel. Listeners are converted and added to the church. Opponents begin to persecute the church. God intervenes in the midst of affliction, right? As this chapter clearly unfolds that and, and unfolds that truth. And then the witness of God expands. That the glory of God expands to the next um, phase of what it is that God is doing. And what is God doing? God is expanding the witness and the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Then we look at what is it that the church as a whole is supposed to do. And what the church is designed to do is a very, again, another pattern. If we look at Acts 2.42, gives us a pattern of expanding our witness, of us growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, of our sanctification, of what it is that will expand the witness beyond the borders of our homes, what will expand the witness beyond the borders of our town, uh, our schools, our workplaces, and ultimately to the uttermost ends of the earth, that a people that are being fit for the kingdom of God, a people that are being transformed into the person of Jesus Christ, and gives us this pattern in Acts 2.42 that tells us that we are to be people who are about the word of God, we are about fellowship one with another, that we are about the breaking of bread one with another, sharing in our lives together, and also sharing in communion with Jesus Christ himself, right? And then ultimately declaring our dependence upon God in prayer, that we can't navigate this life without him. And that pattern then is making us a person fit for the kingdom of God. And another thing that I see in this text that I've seen throughout chapter 7, that I've seen throughout my life, is the declaration that we are to accept no substitute for that. To accept no substitute for Christ and what he's done. And to boil down our Christian faith into a simple thing, I, I, I like simplicity. I like to bottom line things in my own heart, in my own mind. And to bottom line it for myself, I look back to Acts 2.42. What is it that I'm supposed to be about? I'm supposed to be about a person who is underneath and not above the word of God, who is submitted to what the word of God says, right? One who is steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Steadfast in fellowship. That is, that I want to be around others who are in Christ, who are struggling with the same things I am. Because I need them to help sharpen me as well. And then that sharing my life with those fellow believers. Sharing my life in Christ with them. Going back to the table of communion. Constantly reminding myself and my brothers and sisters that I love that we need Jesus Christ more today than we ever needed him. We need him more today than I needed him yesterday. Because as, as my life unfolds and I start to see the depths of, of my own personal soul, I know that I am in desperate need of the person of Jesus Christ. And I know that my brothers and sisters, whatever they might be struggling with, are in desperate need of Jesus Christ. They're in desperate need of him. Because it is the only way that we can be fit for the kingdom of God. So, 
I think that the point of these patterns, as we've looked at it thus far, it's to help us to see who the pattern points us to. That it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. When we see the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, then we ought no longer to look to the pattern, but to look to the reality that we have. That the one that we have, there is no substitute for. The one that we have, there's nothing that can substitute what Jesus Christ is for us. So as we look backwards on chapter 7, in verses 9 through 16, we saw Joseph as Israel's example of godly obedience. For them, and for us, it was a pattern or a shadow of, of what Jesus Christ is. So what I want to do today is I'm going to do some comparisons. I'm going to show that Joseph as an example or a pattern, and then I'm going to show the reality of Jesus. So if you would with me, I'm going to take you through some scriptures. I'm going to take you across quite a few. So um, brace yourself and get your Bible turning uh, hand ready. So uh, first, let's look at Philippians 2. So Philippians 2, we will begin in verse 5. So we see the pattern of obedience in Joseph. We see the pattern of godly obedience. We see the pattern of an example that um, Stephen uses as his argument. He says, I gave you Joseph as an example of godly obedience. So God gave you that as a gift, as a gift of grace. And then yet there's a greater example, a greater gift of grace, a greater than Joseph, which is what we have is in the person of Jesus Christ, a greater than Joseph. Let's look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and found in and found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do we see the supremacy of Christ as an example? The supremacy of Christ as the obedient servant of God. Next, if we look back at Acts chapter 7, in verse 25, we see that Moses was the one giving them, that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. He was giving them salvation in the person of Moses. Salvation from their times of trouble. Salvation from their time in slavery. Freedom. He was setting them free. Remember that earlier in Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, it says this, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven giving among men by which we must be saved. Christ is supreme in salvation. 
Christ is a greater than Moses in salvation. That Moses was a pattern. Christ is the reality. That Joseph was a pattern of obedience. Christ is the reality. Christ is the real thing. In 726 of Acts, we see that Moses as a reconciler. It says that um, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. See, Moses was, was given to reconcile people to themselves. And that he was a reconciler to reconcile a people contrary to God, back to God. Right? A reconciler. Remember, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. And we'll look at 2 Corinthians 5, about verse 18. This gift of Christ as the reality and not the example. The reality and not the pattern. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That Christ is the reality of reconciliation. Christ is the real reconciler. And that these were just mere patterns. You see, remember the accusation against Stephen, what it was. The accusation against Stephen was this. That Christ is going to come, this Jesus, is coming to upset our traditions. He's coming to upset all of those things. And, and, and Stephen spells this out for them and says... God gave you example after example after pattern after pattern of the reality of what it is that Christ was really here to do for you. That Jesus is the reality of God's intent in the world. He would tell them and unfold this. And that's what it has been unfolded for me as I keep looking at this, at this text is that there's no greater reality than the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And there's no greater reality of anything that I need in my life. There's nothing greater that you need. There's nothing greater that you need right now. Everyone sitting here. There's nothing greater than you that you need than the person of Jesus Christ. No matter where it is. No matter what struggles you are in. No matter um, your financial situation. No matter your family situation. No matter... Uh, what it is that is stirred up in you as turmoil in your life. There's nothing greater that you need than the person of Jesus Christ because he is supreme and he is sufficient for all of those things as I think that the word of God clearly spells out for us. In, in Acts 7.34, we look at Moses again. It says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. He takes Moses and says, I will send you as a deliverer of my people. Well, as great a deliverer as Moses may have been, the great deliverer we can find, if we look in Hebrews chapter 2. Flip there with me if you would. I can remember where that book is. I got it. <laughs> if we can look at Hebrews chapter 2. I want to look at, beginning at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Each one of us were subjected to a lifelong slavery and we needed a deliverer. Moses was an example of that deliverance from slavery. But we have the great deliverer and the only one that could deliver us from ourselves, that could deliver us from the world, that can deliver us from sin. It was the person of Jesus Christ. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which is you and I, as we are grafted into this family of Abraham, as we are children of the promise. Right. We are children of the promise. It says here that it is it is for us. Therefore, he had to make he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, we have a Christ who knows our frame. We have a Jesus who can deliver us because he knows what it is to be subjected to the things that we are. That he was made like us. That he could deliver us out of this world. Deliver us out of ourselves. To make us a people fit for the kingdom of God. A people fit for heaven. In Acts 7 verses, uh, verse 35. Again we see another aspect of what it is that Moses was a pattern for. An example of is that Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. See, he sent him as a ruler and as a redeemer of the people. When we look at Revelation chapter 1, flip there with me if you would. I want us to see the greater deliverer, the greater ruler, the greater ruler in Christ. Let's look at Revelation 1, verse 4, as John makes this greeting to the seven churches. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That this Christ is supreme. Because he is the ruler of all rulers. He is the king of all kings. And he has dominion over everything. And over everyone. Over every principality that is out there. That is in charge of us. Or in the things that we must submit to. That Christ is the supreme ruler of all things. He is the one who can rule our lives. And I love that our ruler is also one, as we look at Hebrews, who knows our frame, who has been subjected to everything that we have, that he sympathizes with us, with our situation, because he too has been subjected to the same things that we are, and yet he wants to deliver us out of that, and that he is a benevolent, kind ruler, one who is merciful and patient with us. As he makes us a people fit for the kingdom of God. In 735, we also saw that that, that Jesus, that, that Moses was an example, a pattern of the Redeemer. And for you and I, who are those that are lost, 
that this redemption comes only in the person of Christ. And you might remember from our Christmas time message, one that is said all the time, is, is this from Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is our Redeemer. Our Redeemer has come. Our Redeemer was born as the person of Jesus Christ. That's our Redeemer. And it's greater. It's greater than the pattern. But all of those patterns, all of those things that we looked at and have looked at in the book of Acts, all that Stephen was pointing to is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all of those things and the sufficiency of Christ that we can find nowhere else. We can find nothing else that's sufficient to save us from our sins. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. In Acts 7, verse 38, we see in Moses that Moses was the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness and that he, and that he spoke with the angel at Mount Sinai and with his fathers and he received living oracles to give to us. This Moses received living oracles to give to them, right? He received the law. And I think that we can clearly see that Jesus is supreme as it concerns that. If we look at John chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Supremacy of Christ to the law, to the word. He was the word. He is not the pattern. He is the reality. That Christ is the reality. And lastly, I'm going to close with... Psalm 90. You see, it has always been the plan. It has always been the pattern. It's not God second-guessing what it is that he wanted us to do and wanted us to be about. That it was about God being our dwelling place. That, that we find our life in him. That we then, as sojourners in this world, as pilgrims, as those who are foreigners in a foreign land, that our dwelling place is clearly found in God. It says here in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our dwelling place is found in the reality of Jesus Christ. That makes us a people fit to live in the kingdom of God. So to conclude this, I think that we have clearly seen that it has always been God's plan that we would dwell with him forever. That is that in this land of affliction, God intervened. In the land of affliction that you and I live in, God intervened. God sent his son. That through Jesus Christ's example and obedience, through his substitutionary death on the cross, that by faith in him, we would find our dwelling place in God. There is no substitute. There is no shadow. There's only the person of Jesus Christ. 
Only the person of Jesus Christ makes us fit to dwell with God. So my question for all of our hearts this morning as we sit here is, do you understand that you are fit for the kingdom of God? Or do you sense in your heart, I don't feel like I'm fit. I don't feel fit for the kingdom of God. It's a simple task that I ask of you this morning. If God is stirring in your heart as you sit here that you are not a person fit for the kingdom of God, surrender to him. Surrender to Christ. Because it is clear to me that in the scriptures point us to this clear, clear fact that it is only in Christ that we can be fit for the kingdom of God. So if you find yourself in a place where your heart is just wrecked and saying, I don't find myself fit for the kingdom of God, understand this, that Christ is calling you to surrender to him and that by faith in him, guess what? Then you walk in victory. By faith in who Christ is and what he's done for you, you walk in victory saying, I am fit for the kingdom of God. Not in and of myself, not in my own righteousness, not in my own strength, not in my own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. I am a person fit for the kingdom of God. And you can walk boldly and proudly in that truth, boldly and proudly in the truth of Jesus Christ and who he is for us. Are you fit for the kingdom of God? Are you who are in Christ find yourself at times doubting your fitness? I do. I'm going to fully admit that. I find myself doubting that I am fit for the kingdom of God all the time. I come face to face with the reality of who I am in my heart, in my thinking. I come, I come to grips with that week in, day in, day out. I get to the end of the day having tried my level best to live for him and recognize that I've fallen way short. And I say, I am just not fit to be a person for the kingdom of God. I'm not fit for that. And then I get this great reminder. But Christ is all sufficient. Christ is supremely sufficient for that. Remember the reality that Christ came at a real time, at a real place. And when he came, he paid for your sin once and for all. It was a one-time payment. He paid it once and it completely cleansed you forever. Remind yourself of that, 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 that the supremacy of Christ, it's not your supremacy, it's not your sufficiency, it is the supremacy of Christ that makes us fit for the kingdom of heaven. Faced with that reality, I say our natural response is to do what? Praise God, right? Is that not our natural response? Is to say, in light of that reality, I am not fit for the kingdom of God, but Christ has made me so. What should I do in response to that? Do I have to go out and, and try to live a certain way or to put a bunch of rules in place? No. It's simply this. Praise God. Praise God for what Christ has done for me. I can live in that reality. That is an amen moment, right? That is a moment that I think that all of us should shout from the mountaintops that I don't have to do it, that Christ did it all, that he is sufficient. That's, that's the thing right there, right? That, that gets us up in the morning, right? That should put a spring in your step and get you out of bed in the morning. Is that Christ is all sufficient for me. My life is hidden in him. He's done it all. Praise God to the glory of God. 
Amen. So, normally at this time we kind of do a little quiet sort of reflection. And we're going to do that again this morning. But as we do, we're going to prepare to respond to the greatness of Christ by going back to the cross of Jesus. By taking communion with him. By recognizing those broken places in us. And saying that, you know what? As Hebrews told me, that Christ knows my frame. He knows that I came from dirt, so I'm going to act like dirt. He knows that that's where I came from. He too subjected himself to that. And his body was broken for all of the broken places in me. And then, his blood was sufficient, not just to cover my sin, but to cleanse it forever. That I might be one fit to be in the presence of a holy, awesome God. Who is glorious. So this morning, quiet your hearts and minds and reflect on that truth as the men come forward and they will pass out the elements and then we will take them together. <clears throat>